house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast defiantly owning our budding teenage sexuality in a way that scares the hell out of Little Man Tate. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Joe Reed. I am here, as always, with my co-host, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Hello, Joe. Chris, are you lounging in your gauzy bedroom with... An IV drip and I am not sparkle, actually, sparkly nurses surrounding you. I'm very intently glowing over this seating arrangement. Everyone is oh, sure. here is either a mortal enemy or has had a torrid affair with each other. Notice how I'm I am taking this line to make this entire thing all about me. We'll get into it. I am in the corner sweating through my uh, repressed homosexuality. So that's how I've chosen to celebrate. The, the the evening episode. There's really no shortage of costume opportunities, I feel like. I feel Tony like Collette is... Tony Collette with that I've been ignored all my life haircut. Like there's a lot of ways we could go. With, with this. the like auburn strands, very, very mid two thousands. Truly. Mid two thousands edgy. Black sheep signifiers all all aboard. So we could not talk about evening just ourselves. I feel like this movie was too too big, too anticipated. Only this podcast would have anticipated this movie, quite specifically. But honestly, once we started the podcast, we knew we had to do this eventually. We sort of had it in our back pocket. <laughs> like, I think you mentioned at one point, Chris, like, is this like a 50th episode kind of thing? Is this a 100th yeah. episode? Is this our anniversary show? And then we had, we've got a guest on this week, a guest who we have been looking forward to having for quite a while. And this was the only request that he made. So first of all, I want to welcome uh, my good friend, Vanity Fair chief critic, podcaster, um, fantastic, uh, is an author. There's just no no shortage of superlatives for Richard Lawson. Welcome, Richard. Good evening. Or should <laughs> yeah. I say bad evening? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the way. That's the way to do it. Yes. So Richard, you had one word in your response to us when you asked to pick a movie, and it was evening. It would was. You, would you care to explain yourself? Well, partly it was because I never, I, I'd never seen it before. Um, I was aware of it because I'd gotten my mom the book for Christmas when I was a teenager, and she hated. The oh book. wow! <laughs> <laughs> and I had just moved to New York in, in 2007. I'd been there about a year when the movie came out, and yeah. 
I wasn't seeing a ton of movies because I was really broke and I but I had that crazy cast and I was like I should see it but then it was in theaters for like all of a second you know and then was gone boy um and so if this, this still- one couldn't set up a residency at the Paris theater for a good month and a half then truly it was hopeless yeah, I mean, there's a lot we'll talk about, I'm sure, but, like, it's bizarre the movie came out in summer. Like, there's just a lot of weird stuff. Um, yeah. And um, so, yeah, I missed it. And But despite it having, like, one of the kind of crazy starrier casts, though it does that sneaky thing where the big, big stars aren't really the big, big roles. So yeah, that's, right. that's kind of the funny trick it pulls. Yes, exactly. So, um, yeah, I think before we get into evening, though, I want to back up a little bit. Whenever we have a new guest on, we like to just sort of have a little chat about you. And I've, I've come to, to talk about this segment as like asking about your Oscars origin story, which mm. feels vaguely superheroish, And yet, in a way... Appropriate. I think that's one of the things you and I, I mean, I think we bonded over like several odd things, including like having exact same memories of the real world seasons. But I think one okay. of the things was I think you and I both have sort of approach movies similarly and have an affinity for the Oscars. And now we both talk about the Oscars on our podcast. You are, of course, the co-host of Little Gold Men, which I have been lucky enough to guest on a few times. And yeah, so we both ended up podcasting about the Oscars. But how did it how did it begin for you? What was the first time you remember being aware of the Oscars as like a a year long or like sort of a, a process rather than like a one night a year thing? Well, first off, when you say memories of real world seasons, you're specifically referring to Danny from New Orleans, right? One million percent. <laughs> okay, good. Um, also, Oscars... Davis from Denver. I feel like we had a few conversations <laughs> about, so there was that. Oh, I think yeah, I think I saw him in a Corbin Fisher movie once, but um, uh, <laughs> I don't know how specific we, we want to get about that. Haven't we show, all? But, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I um, I think my first memory of the Oscars would have been for the movies of 1993. So. Uh, the uh, 1994 Oscars, however you want to, you know, do that whole weird year thing. Um, right. But it was because n- my sister had seen the piano with our like babysitter. I had oh gone to damn! See the Pelican, Pelican Brief instead. Um, does that is that the same? Oh, that all the same year? No, that can't be the same. Yep. Year. Yeah, ninety three. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um. Yep. And but 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 I think also wasn't Holly Hunter also nominated for the Firm that year? Yeah. yeah. Weirdly, the, had... both of the two Grisham movies came out within the same year because like they were getting that money. They were like the iron is right. hot for this guy, and we are wasting no time because the client then was the year after. And all three are great movies. Yeah. Oh um, yeah. I could watch the three of those on a loop. They're great. But but I had so I had seen uh, one of the Oscar Hunter movies with the Firm, and my sister had seen the piano, and I was kind of curious about what that was. And, you know, like Tom Hanks was in the running for Philadelphia. Like I was just sort of like it was the first year where there were a lot of people who I was like aware of. I was like 10 years old. Right. right. And so I remember my mom let us watch like the first third of the show, maybe because she wasn't big on like letting us watch TV at night. Sure. Um, So we watched the first third. So I saw Anna Paquin in the weird hat when. Yep. Um. And then went to bed, and then I remember ru- like waking up and like running outside to to pick up the morning paper, the Boston Globe, and and flipping to the art section, and you know basically throwing the sports in the in the bushes, <laughs> uh, and and seeing Holly Hunter, you know, in her dress, you know, photos, still photos of her winning. I, so I never I'd never seen the footage until much later. Um. So yeah, yeah, that's the first year that I can really remember. And then I was kind of off to the races, and then. It, for the the Titanic year, that was the first year that I'd seen every Best Picture nominee. 
Yeah. And I and I'd seen them all with my parents because I was a really cool teenager. Mm. Uh, yeah. And um, my mom made this whole spread of food with like themed dishes with kind of puns. She let us stay up till the end. It was a really big deal. I mean, I was like 14. So it was like, you sure. know, arguably I was too old to be treated like to be like, you don't, you don't have to go to bed, but like, right. Again, you can had, stay up all rules. night. Yeah. 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 So, so well, yeah, after that, you know, you know, and, and my entertainment weekly subscription had kicked in at, at some point in that, in those, that four year gap. And so I was fully invested. I feel like that's an underrated aspect because, Chris, we've talked about this with a lot of guests in terms of and a a lot of the touchstones sort of feel very similar. A lot of people talk about when they first were aware and uh, talk about reading the results like the next morning in the Mm -hmm. newspaper, which I remember doing. And I think is such a like the way we live now thing of like we would never think that's like how how far down the list would be even going to the website of you know, a, your newspaper to go find, you know, where the results were the Oscars if you did, ma- you know, happen to miss it. I mean, my um, first Oscar memory is fully in a newspaper as well, but it's Juliette Binoche brandishing her Oscar in her Count Chocula uh-huh. outfit. Mine is Silence of the Lambs. I, I remember very vividly the photo of Hannibal Lecter in the mask, the the still from the Silence of the Lambs, and being like the big surprise that the Silence of the Lambs swept. Um, well, and then but I think Richard one also of the... brought up uh, Entertainment Weekly being a factor, too. I, I think was gonna a say, lot of yes. us who became Oscar nerds in specifically the 90s or even the late 90s, like, Entertainment Weekly has such a, like, place in that legacy for Underrated. us people. Oh, yeah. Like, the, the Entertainment Weekly fall movie preview with Jackie Brown on the cover, the cast of Jackie I Brown. I was just was talking like about that with somebody, yes. The most iconic thing ever. And yep. I just, like, I it was, like, I worshipped that magazine, that issue for, like, you know that whole season and then so yeah entertainment weekly was well because it was um it not that the magazine's bad no means, but it was just a different kind of magazine because there was more yes. space and you know yes um so you could really go deep on things and now i think it's more about like fan service kind of stuff and they do a there was a moment it, but... there was a moment where they gave themselves fully into the harry potter twilight sort of thing about like this is where the money is we need to stay afloat somehow you know, the publishing industry is in a fraught time and they just sort of went for it. And it was probably what they had to do, I would say, maybe arguably what they had to do. But certainly that was like the end of that for me then. But I, I mentioning the fall preview issue. So I've been trying to I've been making an effort to reacquire those old uh, fall preview issues through like, oh, wow, uh, Amazon Marketplace and like and, and eBay and stuff like that. And so they'll arrive. I've gotten a couple of them by now. And they'll arrive, and there is heft to them. Like, I can't, it's surprising to me that, and one of them, <laughs> one of them, it's because it had an insert for um, Carnival, the HBO series Carnival, which was going to debut. <laughs> so there was this, like, big, like, thick cardstock thing uh, with, like, a little, like, tchotchke in it or something for Carnival. So, like, that helped with the heft of it. But, like, there was, these were just, like, substantial issues of the magazine, even relative to what EW was putting out the rest of the year, which to me as a like 16, 17 year old budding uh, Oscar nerd and entertainment writer and movie geek, like was, that was my Bible. Entertainment Weekly was like what I turned to every week. There were other things too, but like the fall preview, the fall movie preview was the thing that was the, it set the, the stage for the whole rest of the year and it like gave me my priority list. The ones that had the big features, they were the big ones, and then the ones that were relegated to like the one page where like they would just sort of run through all the other titles in like mm-hmm. a sentence apiece. 
Yeah, I mean, I used to write like seasonal movie previews for Gawker and for The Atlantic, and I followed their their mode. I mean, I didn't wasn't doing the reporting they were, but like, um, you know. And it's the other perfect, thing about that—it's a perfect formula. It's bulletproof. It, yeah, and in the mid, you know, in the '90s, like there was their internet existed certainly, and I had sort of had it, um, but I wasn't like reading Variety or anything. So oftentimes, no. when, the, when the when the movie previews arrived, I was learning about a lot of big movies for the first time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, totally. That was that sense of discovery. Well, this is when I when I'm on Little Gold Men with you guys, Richard, and we talk about because I'll be on to talk about the the next year's movies like way too early um, Mm -hmm. to talk about. But I feel like there's that sense of it's that same sense of look at all these things I haven't really given much thought to look at all these new movies that are like new on my horizon now. And like it's that same feeling of like. I don't know, just being in front of a giant buffet of movies and just being like, wow, all of these right. choices. And it's before and I, they start whittling themselves away. And I think that's kind of the, the bittersweet pleasure of this podcast is because it, it's kind of about that same energy, you know, like, like, oh, this thing, like the evening has such possibility. And of course, <laughs> yes, it didn't. <laughs> yeah. But w- before you know anything, any movie is kind of exciting, you know, which is which is which yeah. is nice. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about Evening on this episode, directed by Lajos Koltai, who up until this point had been a cinematographer. He would had been Oscar-nominated for doing the cinematography for the movie Malena, which is not a movie I've seen, but I remember it being an Oscar nominee. That sort of stood out because... It's like Monica Belushi on it. the poster, right? right? Monica Bellucci, reading just the little like synopsis of it, it feels like a feature-length movie version of Fergie's part of Nine, but without the song. <laughs> but just sort of just like the Italian sort of like sensual sexual woman, or maybe sort of like reverse, like gender reversed Rochelle Rochelle, where there's a young young man coming into his sexuality, and this woman is sort of like the the very sort of like sensual woman in town. But that's that's what it impressed me as was. Fergie and Nine, the movie, which, honestly, great. Good for him. Um, so he gets that uh, Oscar nomination in 2000. This is his, I don't think, I think it's his second film directed. I think it's his last. Yes, he had a Holocaust mm-hmm. film um, right. as well, which I feel like might have been the submission, the Oscar submission for that country. It was called Fateless. Oh, okay. But I, I don't know if it was out. shortlisted or not. When so we were, we'll get into yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, written by Susan Minot based on her novel with the screenplay for the film by Susan Minot and Michael Cunningham. We'll get into that. Michael Cunningham, of course, author of The Hours. Film stars Claire Danes, Patrick Wilson, Hugh Dancy, Vanessa Redgrave, Tony Collette, Natasha Richardson, Mamie Gummer, Glenn Close, Meryl Streep, uh, the glittering specter of Eileen Atkins, and an actual uh, syringe of estrogen, which honestly is... <laughs> Great. Premiere June 29th, 2007. So weird. What's that? How is that a June movie? Oh, like July 4th weekend. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Go into your July 4th weekend. Really just, you know, immersing yourself in the exquisite melancholy of evening. I don't understand it. I don't even understand it as, like, counter-programming. Like, that's not even good counter-programming. It was counter-programming to Ratatouille. (laughs) Right, right. I would have seen Ratatouille, and I love all these women, and I didn't even know it was bad at that point. 
So before we get into the whys and hows of the evening and why we all thought at some point that it had Oscar buzz, Richard, every week we have uh, either Chris or I or one of our guests uh, attempt to sum up the plot of the movie we're talking about in 60 seconds. This one has a lot of characters, but I don't think a whole lot of plot. So not to like pre-jinx you, but I think you'll probably not have too much of a challenge, but would you care to take a shot at evening in 60 seconds? Yeah. I mean, I can try. Okay. How does one sum up the human, human condition in (laughs) a mere 60 seconds? All right. Uh, I am ready with my timer when you are ready. I'm ready. Tell me. All right. Go. All right. So Vanessa Redgrave plays an old lady who's dying uh, in somewhere in New England. Her adult daughters, played by Tony Collette and the late Natasha Richardson, uh, have their own personal issues going on. But meanwhile, Vanessa Redgrave, in her sort of feverish death, you know, nail reverie, remembers a summer in Rhode Island in Newport uh, when she was uh, freshly out of college, living in the village. uh, And going to the wedding of her best friend, played by Mamie Gummer, Uh, she meets uh she has another friend Hugh Dancy who is uh played by Hugh Dancy who is Mamie's brother he's repressed gay they meet Patrick Wilson who's this doctor who's kind of a kind of the sexy guy and everyone's in love with everyone else uh and then um you know things are revealed sexualities are revealed and then Hugh Dancy dies um and then Meryl Streep playing old Mamie Gummer reconciles sort of with uh, old Vanessa Redgrave and um uh, Tony Collette is her life is saved by a fucking baby (laughs) <laughs> yeah with desi from girls no less but yeah all right you made it with like seconds to spare well done richard very well done considering we had all those characters to deal with and listening to you sort of sum that up there were so many points where i'm just like why it felt like there were so many points in this story where they didn't quite go there with anything where yeah. like you keep expecting like and it's not like I need the closeted gay gay guy to actually kill himself, but it feels like they found a way to kill him without having to make the tough decision to have a character do something like that. They like he basically yeah. killed himself by like drunkenly stumbling into a path of a car late at night, stumbling through the woods, trying to like, you know, I don't know, come to grips with himself. And so it was just like, all right, like I don't know, just like pull the trigger on it. Just pull the trigger on Tony Collette's character being something like there's there's this such this vague sense of like she's a black sheep she's disappointing she has a tough relationship with her mother but you don't really see any of that I don't know yeah well so th- this movie I think there's an inter- it has an interesting analog in the door on the floor um, oh, yeah. which is you know adapted from one part I think it's the first half or first third of a widow I think one it's year. the first third yeah. Yeah. So this is also an adaptation of kind of the first third of Evening because the whole book is her recalling her three different husbands. And oh. so this is only one part of the story. It's a big part, obviously. I haven't read the book, but like I was just kind of reading about it. So I think that what they did was they, they, they condensed the story into this one narrative. And I think you lose a lot of the weight of this woman's life. And in the book, Patrick Wilson's character is much more of a Lothario. And the book is kind of about her being obsessed with him for her whole life. And he never like mean you know he he never he never responds in kind or whatever so there's a lot more pathos there and presumably with the daughters too that just like doesn't make it into this movie and so yeah having the framing device of vanessa redgrave dying it's like why not just tell the story about claire danes that one crazy summer you know like i don't understand right 
make it actually you know, just the notebook. Well, right. and Whereas it kind the of the forces floor, a lot a of that pathos. Like, it shoves it into maybe the last 20, 15 minutes of this movie. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's the parts of it that are actually kind of interesting, even though it's just, like, these scenes that could fully be cut out from the movie. So, like, that's interesting. To... Yeah. 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 Yeah, the door on the floor seems to handle that better. I feel like I was always impressed by the way that that movie adapted that book, just from, like, reading up on what else is in that book. Yeah. John Irving being such a sort of, like, famously kind of... His his stuff is always so particular and... Difficult to adapt. Yeah, yeah. But so I did, I, I did a little bit of reading on the author, Susan Minot, and... Her whole life feels like she's one of those characters you would see, you would read about in a book like this or see in a movie like this, where it's just like, it's all very much like New England privilege, but like her mother was killed in a, in a car, her car got hit by a train with, when the signals for the train were down after literally an ice storm. And I was just like, wow, like, this is coming right one week after we did our episode on the ice storm. Um, but, like, I'm like, I've seen that in a movie. Like, I've seen that in a lot of movies. Like, I'm watching that scene actually, like, play out before my eyes. She's, like, got five siblings, and they're all, like, novelist, um, museum uh, curator and author. Uh, she went to Brown University and got her MFA from Columbia. It all feels, like, very much like she's of this kind of environment the sort of like new england privilege but sort of like striving to get past she wrote the screenplay for the movie stealing beauty the bertolucci movie stealing beauty that started Liv tyler and jeremy irons and then this is the other screenplay she did which she adapted this with michael cunningham now michael cunningham of course had written the hours the hours was five years before this I remember in the lead up to evening and tell me if you guys uh, uh, experienced this as well, that it felt like Michael Cunningham had more of a, we were expecting Michael Cunningham to have more of like a role in the adaptation of this. I feel like he was a big part of people being like, Oh, it's Michael Cunningham once again with like half of the actresses from the hours. And people were just sort of like, you know, doing that math. It's in the trailer. Yeah. They say from the writer of the hours. Um, yeah, so clearly you know, they were pulling on that. It was a big thing, and uh, Michael Cunningham is a beautiful writer, and like The Hours is really a great movie. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think that like it, it. The funny thing about this movie is that even back then, I kind of vaguely remember when it when it kind of came and went, and no, and didn't get great reviews. I was like, it was too good to be true, and I kind of always felt that. Like there was yeah. something. Like, why wouldn't that movie be released on Christmas Day or something if it was yeah, this great? Right. You know, if thing. it was living in the legacy of The Hours. Yeah. Also, the other thing about this movie that I think is interesting is I think this movie, in being as bad and as poorly received as it was, weirdly did a little bit, if not a lot, to not rehab The Hours. But I remember, like, The Hours had that thing where it was such a success, but it was also, like, the butt of a lot of jokes about, like prestige Oscar bait movies. There was that joke in 30 Rock about like, you know, where Liz Lemon and her dumb boyfriend are high-fiving over how much they hate the hours and that kind of thing. And where Katie Rich will always give me that joke about like, more like the weeks. I'm like, listen! (laughs) Um, But like, I think it was seen as kind of a uh, a cheap way to get Oscar nominations was just cast all these, you know, 
fancy actresses with great pedigrees and put them in a story with costumes and tragedy and light it just so and have it feel vaguely sort of tragic and voila, like there is your Oscar nominee. And I think something like Evening bombing the way it did weirdly like made people look at the hours and go like, oh, right, the hours is the good version of this. The hours is doing this well. And I don't know. I felt a little bit. They couldn't be more separate, though. And, like, I think the comparison, aside from Michael Cunningham and aside from, like, this movie kind of selling itself on the back of the hours, it's a. I mean, I think it comes from a lot of different misogyny, especially when you're looking at the Oscar race and such. I mean, we're talking about a very macho Oscar year in particular. But I think. It, it the hours it kind of took a long time for it to really shake that like veil of misogyny with the way that it was kind of openly discussed i think but yes to the yeah, extent it's that... so rare that an oscar bait movie with like a male, starry male cast is talked about in the same way i mean maybe yeah. like all the king's men or whatever that sean penn movie is you know but like but it's it's rare and and the hours is actually a good movie and people still treated it like eh, like whatever you know Oscar bait, and I, that's definitely gendered. Right. Where you look at a movie like Vice, and it's just like, what did people think Vice was going for? You know what I it mean? It was explaining like, Dick Cheney's like like mindset, Joe. It's like a really brilliant political <laughs> investigation. What are you talking about? I don't know why about? you don't see that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he was um, reeling him in. Don't you get it? Oh my that's God, the joke. I, <laughs> I thought Kill of the Jesse Plemons thing again the other day, and it made me mad. It still makes me mad. I hate it. So, their life is I think... like Macbeth. <laughs> so, yeah, so there was the halo from the hours, I think, was like, was the prime mover of all of this. But, it, but I think the cast also, and I am, I'm a sucker for this as much as anyone, where I fall for that more is more thing every time. And every and not every, I'm not thwarted every time. Sometimes movies with big, you know, starry casts get nominated too. But like, there's the sense of just like, well, it's Claire Danes and Vanessa Redgrave and Tony Collette and Meryl Streep and Glenn Close. One of them's got a hit, and it's like, no, that's not how it works at all. Yeah, I mean, like I still watch sometimes one of the trailers. For the thin red line with that beautiful Hans Zimmer yeah. score with the with yeah. the choir from you know the South Pacific and um and it's just every actor's name you know like one by one listed and it yeah. just gives you chills because you're like everybody's in this fucking movie <laughs> yep yep and I don't think that we're wrong necessarily to have a sort of Pavlovian response to that I mean the biggest movie franchise in the world probably ever is telling us that ritualistically every two months, it feels like the Marvel movies where it's like, you want everyone to be in the movie, you know? So I don't think that, I don't think it's a mistake. I think the problem is with a movie like evening is that it's not enough. You have to like also make a good movie. Like you you have to make sure the story is there. Each of those people, or at least maybe say half of them or a third of them in some real way. Exactly. I mean, if it if this movie realized that it should have been more just about Claire Danes and keeping all of these other people in orbit, it could have maybe even served her better. But it's like yeah. there's not really many points of interest for any of these characters. It's very like I think that's part of what people's problem with it is. It's like it's just very like kind of cliched things like Mamie Gummer is like not certain she wants to get married, but she's going to get married because that's what's expected of her. Like 
we mentioned Tony Collette, who's like somehow has some problems, but it's just like, oh, she used to be a stripper or like doesn't have her life together. And but Natasha Richardson is like the one who does have her shit together and has children and a happy marriage and all of this. And it's like, I don't know. It's yeah. I mean, I think I I think the problem is, is that if if you read like about the, the bigger book, like it makes a lot more sense that this one evening of sex with Patrick Wilson's character, like meant so much, not just because it like sort of inadvertently sex shamey, like led to the death of somebody, but like it carried on through the rest of her life. But we don't know that in this movie. And so we're just like, okay, but like, what does the Patrick Wilson thing even mean? Like who really cares? Like what is the significance of this other than this poor kid dying, which like, but he's been kind of sidelined enough that it's like, I don't know. The movie just like doesn't know its own proportions. And I think that like bring, maybe bringing in Cunningham to work on the screenplay was an effort to like, yeah. Help, help my not out in terms of like try, figuring out what the, the framework for this version of her story should be, but they just don't get there. And you just, the movie ends and you're like, what was I supposed to have felt? And like, what were the yeah. lessons I was supposed to have taken away? And it, you don't really know because the movie doesn't know. Also the line from, her and 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 Harris is that Patrick Wilson's character's yes. name? Yes. Anne and Harris having sex in that weird little witch's cabin that they find in the middle of the woods or whatever, which also like who who couldn't be turned on by this like dirty, filthy little like I don't know. Anyway. Um <laughs> the line from them sort of like sneaking away there to have sex to Buddy dying is like so gauzy and and not quite metaphorical, but like, just like, it's not, there's no actual causation beyond the fact of like coincidence. It's all, you know, it's coincidental more than anything. Human beings don't believe I had sex with this person and then coincidentally this other person died and it was our fault. Like he was chasing after us, I guess. So like that's, but it's just sort of like it, it writes itself a check, this sort of like mysterious check at the beginning of the movie, where it's just like, we killed buddy. And then like, you know what mom? And it's just like, never (laughs) mind. Um, But like, so there's like on a plot level, it's just sort of like, okay, well that sort of like fizzles at some point. And we're supposed to just like, you know, scratch our chins and ruminate in in the great mystery of it all. And why, you know, why this woman's had this, on her conscience for her for her whole life. But um what was I gonna say? Oh, okay. So at some point, Chris, maybe I'll let you talk about this. We need to address the Claire Danes elephant in the room. Yeah. We are we are um famously a Claire Danes podcast somehow. Uh, you know, in Clearly, the beginning of this I think we've just turned the corner at some point. We've, we've this is the fifth time we've talked about a Claire Danes movie on this house. Are you guys going to do Polish wedding? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, try and stop us at this point cuz really every 3 weeks we have to do another Claire Danes movie or we can't like or, or <laughs> we have some weird like you know, Claws. gem it's, in the middle of the earth that will that will go cold and then we'll die while we'll wither and die. Truly, just like our our second objective with this podcast is keeping the legend of Flora Plum alive. That's really why we keep. Truly, it that's true. We're just treading water mm. until we can talk about Flora Plum. I will say we've talked about five Claire Danes movies. Fully four of them were requested by guests. We only picked one on our own, which was How to Make an American Quilt. But I think it says something about the caliber of our guests that everybody is just clamoring to talk about these these Claire Danes movies. I mean, when we first started doing this, we when we were just kind of like spitballing ideas, we'll be like, well, we got to pace out like this person or this person or this person. And it's like we never probably had Claire Danes in the conversation of people we would be likely to talk about a lot. But in a way, right. like 
as an actress, even though we love her, but like the project she's been in, she's kind of like the poster child for what we Truly. do here and like the type also, of movies she's done. Evening was the, is the third movie that she made in a row that we've talked about. She did Shop Girl, Family Stone, Evening, back to back to back. And we've talked about now all three of them with Shop Girl with Pam and Family Stone with Tara. We've talked about Tajillion on her 37th birthday with Gavin. And now, uh, Richard, you have come to to close out the quintet. So, yeah. And the thing that I didn't realize before watching this movie, you know, like last week, I didn't realize that she was like the lead. She was like the yeah, lead in yeah. this movie. And this was, yeah. you know, pretty this was she was, it was a really weird time in her career because she was getting booked obviously, but like, and like in big, well stuff that should have been big, but wasn't. And it was just, you know, she was kind of in the woods and this is, I think maybe the kind of primary like example of that. Is Stardust the same way? I can't remember where, like, is she the lead of Stardust, but it was sold on De Niro and Michelle Pfeiffer? Yep. Yes. She's absolutely the lead. So it's the same kind of thing. That's so funny that like in the same year, and after that, it really was just like, you know, go away and now come back as a television actress and then Temple Grandin. And it felt like almost like a reinvention, even though it was only a matter of a couple of years. So, And I would just like to say to anyone who might be complaining <laughs> that we are oversaturating the market with Claire Danes episodes. Just remember, this is also our third Mamie Gummer episode. Wait, Ricky and the <laughs> Flash and what else? Cake. <laughs> I forgot about Mamie that. Mamie Gummer's cake. <laughs> <laughs> Mamie Gummer's <laughs> and Mamie Gummer in Kate. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, this was, and this is her first movie. Yeah, I was going to say, this was right? her first movie. I have come to, I mean, I probably have mentioned this because we have now talked about Mamie Gummer for several episodes. I've come to really enjoy her as an actress. This was not an auspicious debut. I don't think she's bad in it, but there's there's not a whole lot of of she doesn't impress i will say in this movie i don't know what did you guys think i don't think that's a great character that she's playing at least the way she's written i think it's borderline offensive does she does her character it's it's part of the mona lisa smile cinematic universe right yes (laughs) yeah she was on break from uh from julia roberts's class yes god she would have been a perfect fit in a movie i mean that's the funny thing it's like i i kind of like mona lisa smile weirdly i i i like this world of waspy, you know, mid-century yeah. stuff. Like, like there's a version of this movie that even if it's not like good, good, I really like. But mm-hmm. like, it doesn't even get there, you know. And I think um, the Notebook is a really good version of of this story that isn't like, you know, doesn't hit the same sort of tragedy beats in the in the flashback part. But like, that is this kind of story as pop entertainment. Yes. I think the version of this movie that realizes that this kind of extreme level level of like seaside idyllic privilege is kind of gross and realizes it because there's like I think that's the good version of this movie. But like this movie is not at all interested in like critiquing it like Claire Dane shows up in a peasant top and apparently she's somehow inappropriately dressed and it's like she's a weirdo. Yeah, she shops in the village. Oh, you shopped in a village? No, Greenwich Village. Like (laughs) it's like she's. Right. a peasant top and a like tweed blazer calm down yeah i was gonna say i almost said that you know you're wrong that it's glenn close who has the most thankless character in this movie and then i remembered that she also gets a scene where she just full-on gets to He's wail for screaming. a minute and a half glenn close okay let's yeah to bring it up this is the performance that really made me turn on glenn close a little bit because oh, wow. Glenn Close fully Sing thinks it, that every scene of this movie is her movie. 
But that's what I love about Glenn Close. That's why I'm glad we have a Glenn Close for that purpose. For this movie, though... I watched the scene in Evening where she just fully just, like, howls to the entire islands of of New England, of of, the New England coast... And I just wrote in my notes in capital letters, give, give Glenn Close the Oscar, you cowards. And I sent it to both of you because genuinely that's how I felt. I'm head. a little confu- confused, though. You guys keep saying performance. Even, this is this was she wasn't acting. <laughs> they showed up to her house and they filmed showed up around to her house her. that morning. Yes, yeah, yeah, they were filming around her. She, this, this is just where she lives. And they said, Glenn, remember what happened with Dangerous Liaisons? And she went, and then, <laughs> there's a shot in my like least favorite scene in this movie where they dance to Michael Bublé because this is a movie that <laughs> never was a movie more 2007 than this movie when it tries to play off a Michael Bublé song as period appropriate. Fully. Fully. Um, but like it cuts to her like responding like a just like a reaction shot to Hugh Dancy and Claire Danes dancing and it's like you're just doing a reaction shot. This isn't your movie. <laughs> Yeah. Um, speaking of uh, funny music, um, do you guys know what song plays in the trailer for Evening? Oh, no, I didn't no. watch it yet. What is it? A little ditty called White Flag by Dido. No! <laughs> yeah. Get the this fuck out of here. a Dido yep. movie. Our audience will already know this because I will fully have clipped that part of the trailer for the beginning of this episode. So it, you, You're watching the trailer and you're like, the hell does that have to do with anything? Oh, <laughs> that's that just like there? when I watched the Shop Girl trailer and I was literally, was it you who I texted, Richard? Or I was like, guess what song they use in the Shop Girl trailer? Sound of Settling. Oh. Right? It's uh, Dashboard. It's, yeah. Yeah, Sounds of Settling. Yes. Right. But I was Wait, like, it could not it have been more perfectly of its era. I believe it's White Flag. Yes. Oh, Jesus Christ. Like I will go down with this ship, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 yeah it's that song. At least in Wild. the trailer I watched. Maybe there were multiple. Maybe there was a theatrical one and a home video. But the, the one I saw, yeah, yeah. it's definitely that song for the latter oh, twenty-five seconds of the of the trailer. So I'll put this question out to you guys because we we've mentioned Mamie Gummer and then Meryl shows up late in this movie. To I swear to God, if you had told me at some point by the end of the movie that she at secretly was playing like the angel of death who like swooped into that room and was just like pulled out the life from Vanessa Redgrave's body, that I was just like, yeah, yeah, that's that makes sense. Um, so it's Marilyn Mamie, and then it's Vanessa Redgrave and Natasha Richardson. Who wins the mother daughter games of two thousand seven in this movie? Oh, I mean Marilyn Mamie. I, I think it's a genuine. Natasha doesn't speak in this movie. No, maybe. she has no, no role. Um, I think that she's Meryl a nice in the lady mo- with children, <laughs> right? Exactly. Well, because she has the good, safe, happy, settled life, Chris. Because yeah. that's what makes you. That's what what happy people do. They get married and they have children. Um, but I think the Meryl performance is genuinely good. Um, I do too, and it's yeah. so refreshing because you're like, oh, here's somebody who's like figured out what to do with this, you know? When um, she crawls into the bed with her, and I'm just like, oh, this yeah. feels very like comfortable and like. And I feel like I'm in good hands. With it really sells scene. that relationship of these two women who at this point haven't seen each other in decades. decades. Yeah. It sells the relationship way better than Mamie Gummer and Claire Danes do it together. Yes, actually true. Yeah. 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 No, well, think... well, because in the in in the, the flashback stuff with Claire and Mamie, you're like, I don't really believe they'd be friends. Yeah. You know, it's not like they were still in school. So it was just kind of like, well, we live in the same dorm. So we're friends. It's like, it's supposed to be a few years after college, I think. So like, and she lives in New York City. I just don't buy that they would still be hanging out because they don't seem yeah. to have anything in common. Yeah. No, it's true. Especially, well, again, like this movie doesn't really give you a whole lot of time with them to feel that. 
to right. you know feel that the ex- experientially. But speaking of Angel of Death, Joe, um, I did take a note here that Eileen Atkinson, when she's in the sort of more fantasy mode, appears to be wearing the fancy dress that Holly Hunter wears in Always. <laughs> What? That, if that's a I was going to say she was wearing uh, Julia Roberts's Tinkerbell costume from Hook. But I mean, she's I wearing a lot of also. things. That, that's she really what, is. That's what's happening. Eileen Atkins um, in this movie with that with that sort of like harsh sort of you know domestic servant accent. Uh, and at some point she says maxi dress, and I can't remember the context really. Maxi skirt, sorry, not maxi dress. She says maxi skirt, and it's like that's all I want on the loop is just Eileen Adkins saying maxi skirt. In in many ways, like all I want from the hours is Eileen Adkins saying, "Wait, what's her line from the fucking flower shop?" Because she doesn't say. The Maybe it just right. takes another ten years to read. <laughs> I actually tried to read Richard's novel. You did. Oh, I know. It's not easy. I know. It did take him ten years to write. Maybe it just takes another ten to read. It's something where she like it's just this like exquisite line of shade about the book, and it's so that's that's why the hours is great though, where it's like every there's a little like you know two minute scene with a side character, and it's perfect. I don't know, but yeah, the Eileen Atkins thing though brings up another interesting element of this movie with. Um, Vanessa Redgrave and her like dementia as she's dying the movie adds in like these like magical realism elements that fully just don't make any sense and are kind of strange like like you mentioned Eileen Atkins showing up in like this gown as her night as her nurse um and like the movie opens on like Claire Danes floating in a boat while Vanessa Redgrave watches also in a gown and it I too kept wanting to call her the night. Trying to do, it's doing the most and the very least. I wanted to keep calling her the night nurse as well, just because it so fits with uh, Angels in America. That's what she's um, billed as. Her character I could, is billed as the night nurse. I could see her doing the Belize. Uh, this is what heaven is. Right. Like <laughs> it's a big city yeah. like San Francisco. Yeah, I want. Cl- I want Eileen's. To do all Claire Dane's floating on that boat. It's like, oh, is that shot in the world of the DreamWorks logo? Like, it's like right. very, very like false bullshit. Well, and then they call back to it at the end, but it's yep. in such this like wan kind of way where it's just sort of like I don't know what she I'm went on the boat to, to be sad after Buddy died. Yeah, this movie also feels in many ways. It's funny you mentioned the DreamWorks uh, logo, but uh, talking about um, the studio of it all, like. This feels like the Omega of focus features, of like an era of focus features. Obviously, it still is a, as the police come to arrest me for shading focus features, which they know I love. We are famously um, a focus focus features fan podcast. Yes, but they're, they are a different thing now. And certainly we talked about last week with like James Seamus, and I can't remember exactly when he would have left. It was after this. It was a good deal after this, right? But like... yeah. 2007, because 2007, um, they also have movies like Lust Caution, Eastern Promises, Reservation Road. They were... Atonement. Atonement, right, which an atonement is great. But it does feel like this was, I guess, maybe milk after this. Maybe I'm just you know, off my own ass about this. But this feels like Evening was a marker where it's just sort of like that sort of golden era of focus that I always have in my heart for... You know, the Brokeback Mountain era, the Vanity Fair era. Like, the movies didn't even have to be good for it to give me the sort of, like, you know, nostalgic feeling. Well, yeah, because when I watched studio. this, I didn't do, like, a digital rental. I got an actual DVD copy of it, and it has, God, we've mentioned dedication. this before, 
one of those like focus feature reels at the beginning of the DVD where it's like it rolls out all of their prestige titles, but then fully movies you forgot about where it's like in this very dramatic voice. It's like Don Cheadle in Talk to Me. The yeah, focus. Yeah. Re- I'll try to find this one or like upload it myself. But this reel was fully insane. I loved those reels. Well, it's the kind of thing now where you at like you you look at like you think about A twenty four and you're like everything they touch turns to gold. But then you actually look at the movies they put out. It's like no, they have clunkers too. You sure, know, yeah. They, they A twenty four is a great example. They should definitely too. they should definitely do a focus style like branding reel like in that way. Just something to like. Because there's such, you know, warm feelings from the film community towards them. And, God, I would die if they had just some sort of, like, sizzle reel. Well, yeah, it's the funny thing of, like, you know, I, I the Focus Features logo at the beginning, like, like filled me with this kind of, like, sense of comfort. Because I was like, oh, this is right? going to be good and it's smart Pavlovian. and classy. And, yep. Yeah, it's absolutely. And, and A24 does that now to some extent, um, I think. Fox Searchlight. Like, I don't know. Like you just have these kind of yeah. associations with these companies, and and yes. you know no one's batting a thousand. I mean, it's not going to happen. Um, totally. and this is definitely a <laughs> a big bit whiff for them. But it didn't really matter because you know they had a version of the same goddamn movie and Atonement come out the yeah. same year and win you know yeah. and be successful. So, like nothing should give me warm fuzzy feelings about Miramax. Like they turned the Oscars into a war zone and they like enabled one of the great villains of all time in real life to sort of, you know, be a predator. But Miramax still has that, like, reptilian brain thing when I see the logo and I see the, like, little thing where it, like, comes over the, like, the the water and into, like, the, the cityscape kind of a thing, that, lo- that you know, animated logo for Miramax. Mm-hmm. And all of my brain does is just, like, remember indie movies when you were first getting into movies remember the mid 90s and it's just like it's this odd little like bit of serotonin and now it does make me feel a little bit like guilty for it Mm -hmm. but like it's it's pavlovian i honestly feel like it's just you know i think it's also something about an era you know like uh, i i've done a couple guest things on um, another podcast podcast called blank check where i Every time they're like, which movie do you want to pick? I, I just go to like late 90s, early 2000s, like every yep. single time. And it's just because yep. my brain was forming then. And, and, yes. and, you know, like I was seeing the Miramax logo then and a little bit later the Focus logo. Like it's just that's maybe my, my and maybe our kind of movie era. And yeah. this movie, Evening, it's funny. It's a little outside of that. And so I, I'm, it's much easier for me to be like, eh, like it's stupid, whatever, you know. And, and it's, it was much yeah. easier for me to never see it. Um, so it's interesting because if that movie had come out maybe f- five years earlier, maybe more, maybe seven years earlier, I probably would have right. a much different like reaction to it. Right. Where it could have been, I'm trying to think of like I'm looking at the list of focus titles. It could have at least been Sylvia, I guess. You know what I mean? <laughs> it could have sure. been. Um, you know, I, I, I think Vanity Fair is actually not a bad example. Vanity Fair is not a good movie. It's a you know, mess. I did but I have my head such in the nostalgia oven. for it. I, I did put my head in the oven halfway through evening. So so it, there is a Sylvia connection. <laughs> so there was, yes. But that's only because you're such a fan of Sylvia that, like, that was, that's how you respond right. to movies like that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, Chris, what did you have? Any other uh, odd little notes? I mean, I guess we could get into why it failed, but the why it failed feels fairly academic. It's just like yeah. the reviews were awful. Nobody liked it and closed the book on yeah. that. Like, and it made no money. 
Yes. Well, yeah. and also, like, it, even just in the movies that Focus had in the fall, you want to talk about, like, Lust Caution, which didn't really go anywhere because there's a lot of sex in it. Um, even, I don't think it was even the foreign submission that year, if I remember correctly. But hugely but, well-reviewed. Like, hugely like, well-reviewed, a big cricket, critic's favorite, and then you also have Atonement at the end of the year. Like, even, I think even the release date for evening is a little bit of a footnote. Like, I don't think this would have registered if it had had a fall release date either. Um, you know, what's funny about the, the focus thing is atonement made less money than evening did. Is that true? Barely, but it is true. How much money did atonement make? It made like just a hair over 12 and evening made like wow. 12 and a half. Wait, atonement did that bad. That's yeah. crazy. I remember that year being like a notoriously low grossing best picture class where like because like No Country for Old Men for a best picture winner was fairly middling box office. I don't think there will be blood that much. <laughs> oh, box wait, office. no, I'm wrong about that. I was literally just looking at the calendar year. Go on. Never mind. Oh, I didn't say that at all. <laughs> so by the end of the year, okay. by the end of the year. Okay. Uh, yeah, it, it was famously it did well eventually. December. Yeah. Yeah. My bad. Sorry about that. Go on. Yeah, that was a late breaker for sure. I but can you I... imagine evening making twelve million dollars today? No, that's. I mean, that's that was the other surprising part of that. I'm amazed that it made that much money because it really did feel like once it opened, it, it nobody wanted to touch it. Nobody wanted to go near it. Yeah, that opened just before I moved to New York City. I moved two months almost to the day after. Uh, after that opened. So it probably would have already been gone from theaters by then. To the village. A village. <laughs> God, if only. I moved to the literal last block in Carroll Gardens before the highway, before the highway that separates uh, yeah. Carroll Gardens from Red Hook. We're literally, like, out my window, I saw the on-ramp to the BQE. So truly, truly the glamorous life I was living. Um, I will say one thing um, in support of Evening. So I, I'm someone who I, I grew up spending summers in Rhode Island, and this movie was all shot in like Tiverton, Rhode Island, and Newport, and points yeah. surrounding that. So it, I think it's lovely to see that landscape. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know the the movie looks good, um, and and I guess satisfies in that way. But like everything around it is yeah. so annoying. And also speaking of Atonement and Ian McEwen, it there's a there's a through line with with this movie and on chesel beach which is another story about like how like one bad fuck can ruin your life you know (laughs) (laughs) or like kill someone and i just hate that kind of i don't know i just don't respond to it and and i think very sex negative it's very sex negative yeah yeah um so boo boo to you evening (laughs) i wish we would get more (laughs) i can't thinking of on chesel beach is just not a great it's a, it's a way to bum you out. It's a way to bum you out for the rest of the day, truly. On Chesil Beach. Poor Saoirse. What, a, what an odd year that at her greatest triumph, also, like, that was, that at the same Toronto Film Festival, I saw On Chesil Beach and Lady Bird. And I was like, wow. Like, yeah, that's right. That's crazy. Whiplash. Yeah. Um, no, but, Whiplash was two, a couple years before. Yeah, right. Oh, right, 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 right. <laughs> good point, good point. Um, Saoirse Ronan and Whiplash. Yeah, honestly, God, I'll I would take I, it. I, wait. I'll take it. Who, wait, who is who does play the token girl fr- girlfriend uh, who's shunted aside in that movie? Melissa Benoist. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I just now um, I just want to hear Saoirse Ronan say drums. <laughs> I play the drums. 
<laughs> you and your drums. Temple. Uh, my no, friend and I have a have a joke that we really wish that um, the Netflix movie Dumplin had done better because we really at somehow like some award show wanted to hear Saoirse Ronan say Dumplin. <laughs> <laughs> Danielle McDonald for Dumplin. Your, thir- your third Parton. best picture nominee is Dumplin. <laughs> the story of a girl. God, it's good. It sounds great. Dolly Parton, the girl from the movies in Dumplin. <laughs> <laughs> truly oh my god all right so i fully lost whatever point i was going to make and you know what honestly it's fine oh can we talk about hugh dancy for a second is this first mm-hmm. of all was this the movie that he and claire danes got together on or were they yes. already together by this they got no, together this on was this the movie. movie yeah so something good came from this honestly though i look in the, at the movie and i'm just like man like they must have been some fun cast parties because like i can't imagine like filming those scenes and like that's when i fell in love with him when he was sweaty and squirrely and and so trying sweaty. to suppress his homosexuality i uh, help me decide whether great. i like hugh dancy as a mo- as an actor i like <sighs> to look at him he's a very handsome presence on screen and i think a lot of his performances are the same this i don't really this is another character i don't like how they are developed in this movie it's like he's more sexless than gay yeah like if he didn't kiss patrick wilson would you know that he was fully a homosexual well and i don't know if the other scenes yeah it's not like the other scenes are like teeming with this like sexual tension otherwise he's just kind of this sad sexless drunk right yeah Yeah. and and you know there are uh, there are definitely ways to make sexual repression or whatever like uh, you know, an interesting, tragic point of a story, especially from you know another era when queerness was was certainly less uh, uh, you know sort of freely accepted. Um, but like, there are also ways to do it really cheaply, and this is something that does it cheaply. It feels yeah. like, oh, I'll just make him sad because he's oh, I know because he's gay, and it's like you kind of have to investigate that more if you're going to do it. And even having Michael yeah. Cunningham kind of like come in and, and work on the, the it doesn't that doesn't like fix it by any means. Yeah. And I think that Dancy is like trying to do his best with a character who is like in- incredibly frustrating yeah. um but uh hugh D- oh hugh dancy is in um mindy kaling's new movie the um uh late, the late night, night movie a- and yeah. he's very weirdly cast in it because he interesting I, you'll you'll mm. understand what i mean when you see it but yeah um but he's, i feel I, like i like him i feel like hannibal was at simultaneously his like greatest acting moment and yet like has maybe boxed him in for me and like my assessment of him where Everything else I see him do in other movie, I see sort of shades of what he does in or what he did in Hannibal. And I don't know. I'm expecting him to just like sort of flip out at any moment. I don't know. The other thing about this movie is I think I would buy a lot of what else happens in the movie if we got the kind of Patrick Wilson I'm used to from other movies. He's a it's a very strangely charisma free Patrick Wilson performance in this movie, like, and tell me if you disagree, but I feel like you look at a movie like Little Children or even like Young Adult, both of those movies that depend on the idea that people would spend a lot of their free time imagining Patrick Wilson and and sort of like fantasizing about him and like him being like the most sort of like effortlessly charming person that other people would like you know, throw it all away for, essentially. Well, you mentioned it's kind of a sexless movie, but, like, I think it also really relies on our perception of Patrick Wilson in that way, that the movie never really tries to reenact, as you're mentioning. Yeah, I just feel like Like, that's, like... It's the least you will ever be thirsty for Patrick Wilson. 
but it's the most like but the story depends on just that very thing which i find like crazy exactly. i don't know richard Weird. what did you think of that yeah i mean he's only done it for me like a couple times so so in into certain things and so like in this movie where they're everyone's the Alamo, obsessed I imagine. sure yeah. of course yeah, yeah yeah um aquaman i mean it was interesting well yeah i was just gonna say that you know <laughs> i wonder if 12 years ago we, anyone would have been like someday he's gonna play a, a character named orm in an aquaman movie <laughs> like it's just like what a weird career he's had um but like I don't know, reading about what the novel is about and how this character functions in the novel, you can kind of see some of the choices they made in terms of, like, he's not, like, a very friendly guy. Like, he's kind of got a weird disposition, and that apparently is a much bigger part of the book, like, that he's kind of a jerk. I see. But I feel like they just don't commit either way to, like, him being that or him being the man of your dreams, and so he falls in this weird middle ground where you're like, why is everyone so upset about him? Why is everyone in love with him? Like, I I don't get it. Right. I'm in love with Eileen Atkins. Listen, but I only have room in my heart for one person in this movie, and it is our sparkly, perhaps imaginary night nurse, Eileen Atkins. So there we have it. Chris, we have the return of an old friend in our discussion of this movie. We do. Uh, one I of our you... our favorite rarity, or our favorite little novelties. Uh, evening, while not nom- nominated for any Oscars or any other major awards, it is an AARP Movies for Grown Ups nominee for Vanessa Redgrave for Best Actress. I feel like we haven't talked about the Movies for Grown Ups Awards since we did our uh, ill-fated for me live tweet of this past year's Movies for Grown Ups Awards, where I discovered that uh, YouTube TV for live TV doesn't have PBS. And also that PBS doesn't have a watch live option, even if you like subscribe to their little on-demand system. So, you know, the world and the universe conspired against me watching the Movies for Grown Ups Awards this year. And that yeah. is a shame. If you go back and look at those tweets of an unhinged person watching all live Chris tweeting, Pyle. it is all me. And honestly, you did a great job. So, yes, yeah, so Vanessa Redgrave nominated for Evening alongside one actress who we've talked about this performance before, Meryl Streep, Lions for Lambs. Sally Field in a movie I've never heard of before called Two Weeks. I don't know, Richard? Uh, I mean, I haven't seen it any, since I finished Any familiarity I, with no, this movie? No, I don't think I haven't I've seen, even heard of that. Not since I finished editing it. I, I mean, it was years ago. <laughs> I want to describe the poster for two weeks for everybody because I think it's important. This is a movie that stars Sally Field and Ben Chaplin, which also remember Ben Chaplin, you guys. The tagline for the movie is, what are the moments that define your life? Which... Truly. So there's two photos on the poster. One of them is a fully photoshopped set of Sally Field gazing into the middle distance with Ben Chaplin sort of like over her left shoulder gazing at her. Although like clearly they were in no, no proximity to each other in this actual shot. And then the other shot from the movie is looks like her in a wheelchair and him sitting down. And they're both on the beach staring into the ocean, which to me is like that's the end of beaches folks like i don't know what to tell you so the evening star yes exactly <laughs> exactly but just like it looks like he's preparing to like have one nice last moment with her and then literally wheel her out into the surf is this <laughs> not the same time as brothers and sisters though because 2007 it, would have been the be- yes i think she won the emmy it, like that year it would have fully just been sally field did a movie at the height of brothers and sisters and that's just what happened yeah yeah. Um, yeah, she's should... dying, and then she's got... Oh, wait, there's four adult siblings, and I want to see who plays them. 
Julianne Nicholson. Oh. Tom Tom Cavanaugh. Oh, Ben Chaplin might be her son? Ooh, sorry, guys. It's a pass from me, gang. And then Glenn Howerton from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. You guys, that's tough. Sure. Um, We should also mention that Vanessa Redgrave did win a Mothy Award that year for Best Chasing a Moth During a Dream. (laughs) (laughs) The prestigious Mothies. Previous winners included... God, Blythe Danner probably magical realism scenes that don't make any sense. She chases this moth and then like sees her daughters fighting, but they don't recognize her. So it's like, is she a ghost? Did she die for a minute before coming back to life? We don't know. Yeah, it doesn't make any. But I remember because when when I bought I bought the book for my mom because the cover was beautiful and the cover is a moth. So like uh, clearly the moth factors into the story in some bigger way, but we don't. Clearly that's not. They don't get there in the movie by any means. So it just involves Vanessa Redgrave flitting about in her nightgown. (laughs) No, unsurprisingly, the actual poster for evening for the movie is this like late sunset, like seconds before the sun actually like goes out of the sky um, with a little uh, what would you call that body? The little bit of water in between like i don't know a tide pool something a vestibule of sea right with a little tiny little sailboat and then like two people making out on the rocks but mostly it's just names it's literally it's just every name of everybody in this movie and they were not like that was the marketing strategy for this movie is if you wanted to see a movie where natasha richardson shares poster space with Mamie Gummer, then y'all, we've got a movie movie for you. So I will always want to see that movie. I don't care how bad it is. Also, the tagline is her greatest secret was her greatest gift. Was it? <laughs> what was her secret? What was the gift about it? It's, if anything, her greatest secret was her greatest pain. I guess it's pain a gift. Like, Maybe. But I think her greatest secret was I knew a, cl- <laughs> I knew a gay guy who died. Like, it was really... <laughs> Honestly... I don't know. I shouldn't make fun. Like that's a sad. It's a sad. Poor it's buddy. It's a sad reality. <laughs> Rest in power, <laughs> buddy. I, truly, truly. It also reminds me that Buddy was also the name of the Chris O'Donnell character in um, Fried Green Tomatoes, who gets killed by a train in a not dissimilar like fashion, where all of a sudden like. The whole, like, I think Glenn Close also, like, showed up to just let loose a whale in that movie as well. And that was Chris O'Donnell. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, it was in that movie. Yeah, no. Did I say that? Did I? Did I? No, I, I, I wasn't sure if you said it, but I just remember, oh, yes. remembering. Hot oh, yeah. Buddy thread good. He was so, so handsome in Cried Green Tomatoes. I almost wish that Jessica Tandy hadn't been Oscar nominated for that role. So we could talk about that movie on this podcast because like, I love, I could spend a minute talking about fried green tomatoes. I I saw that movie so much. Yeah. I was obsessed with that movie. That was a VHS that we had when we were younger and we watched it so often. My sisters like would spend full weeks just talking in those accents to the point where like everybody wanted to kill them. But Honestly, it was great. <laughs> that was a movie that like my mother was fully obsessed with, and like whenever she would make like new people watch it that hadn't seen it, she would describe it as like, "Well, it's the story of these two women and their friends." And then I would fully just like scan the room. Yes, yeah, exactly. See if anybody else is picking up what I'm putting down. Watching that movie at age twelve versus watching that movie at age thirty something is a whole different experience. The last time I watched that movie, there's the scene where um. 
where Mary Stuart Masterson goes to fetch honey from the tree to give to Mary Louise Parker. And I remember before, like, the whole idea was just like, oh, they're very close friends. And I knew that, like, the thing, the, the book had, like, was went more into, like, the, the lesbian subtext or text of their relationship. But I sort of knew that academically. And then watching the movie, literally, like, Mary Stuart Masterson is elbow deep into this tree that has, like, a, like, crevice in it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And just mm-hmm. sort of just, like, no, reaches just all up in there. gloopy. Like, leaves fully gloopy, like, pulls out this giant honeycomb as Mary Louise Parker is, like, across the field and literally going, like, oh. Like, you know what I mean? She's, like, so (laughs) impressed. It's, watch, find that scene and watch it. It is the greatest, most fun example of, we can't acknowledge that these women were fucking, but, like, she's fucking that tree. And, like, Mary Louise Parker's wishing she were that tree. So just, like, connect the damn dots, people. More like A.J. Fist good. <laughs> if itchy we did... fist good, itchy nasty. <laughs> if we did funny episode titles, itchy fist good would be would one million percent be it. Absolutely. Oh my god. Do we have anything else to say about evening before we go into the IMDb game? Yeah, no. I think we've I now like talked I've... about evening more than anyone else in the history of evening has ever talked about it. Yes. I want to know the number of cast members of the movie Evening that remembers that they made this movie. <laughs> exactly. Oh, one thing, I'm going through my notes to see if there's anything I didn't talk about. One thing I noticed was when Meryl Streep comes down from upstairs after having visited Vanessa Redgrave, and she and Tony Collette have that brief little talk, and then Tony Collette hugs her. It's the exact same way Claire Danes hugs old Julianne Moore at the end of the hours. I'm telling like, you, this movie chases the hours in every oh, possible way. Absolutely. But like, I, I feel like you could like superimpose one over the other and it would be like the exact same thing. Yeah. I, I mean, really, I think we could probably conclude that this movie would not exist if the hours. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think like the moral of the story is like, go watch the hours. It's basically. And you what know what? Saying. Neither would we. We would not Truly, exist oh, without the hours. I would not be. Certainly, I would not be the fucking faggot I am now were it not for. <laughs> The hours so my final right. notes like i if i sympathize with evening not only just because i too was radicalized by the hours but like truly i am always going to watch this movie i am not going to care how bad it is but like any movie that is like this that is operating on the level that this is even if it doesn't rise above it i am always here for it but like we and it's not just i think the thing these days of where it's like we don't make women's pictures and we don't like give women's pictures their due but like this is truly kind of like the type of prestige movie that we don't see anymore yeah it's true women deserve more but but yes (laughs) yes indeed all right chris do you want to explain um what we do with the imdb game while i yes every episode we end um we end the episode with the imdb game where we challenge each other to name the top four titles that imdb's mysterious algorithm says that a famous actor or actress is most known for um caveats being we try to avoid players in the marvel cinematic universe and the harry potter films because those float to the top and it's pretty boring to remember what x person was in harry potter 4 um uh we get two wrong guesses and then we get the years as hints and if you still don't get it then you get like just a slew of hints we also mention if there's voiceover or tv work and that is the imdb game 
Indeed. So, Richard, as our guest, we'll give you the choice to give a clue first or guess first. And so we'll I go will, in a round-robin fashion. I, I will give first. Okay. So would you I'm, like I'm, to give... I'm very edgy. thread good in that way. Okay. So why don't you... <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. All right. So you, uh, you give your clue to me, then I will quiz Chris, and then Chris will quiz you. Okay. Um, I was going to do Vanessa Redgrave, but of course she's in all those Marvel movies. So, uh, inst- <laughs> uh, instead, I'm going to go for uh, what what four movies does IMDb think Eileen Atkins is best known for? Oh, oh damn! Oh. All right. And let me tell you, it's a funny uh, funny lineup. Oh my god! All right. So I'm going to hope that I don't know. Is Evening one of them? No. No. Oh boy. This is going to be a challenge. Um, this is truly, I think, the most wild lineup that we have ever had. Oh, great. Okay. So, Eileen Adkins movies. Because she showed, the thing with her is she'll show up so, like, so incredibly briefly. Like, that's her, like, that's her deal. Oh, wait. She is in Gosford Park, and I know that movie shows up a lot. So, I'm going to guess Gosford Park. Yes, that is one of them. Yes. Okay. All right. Um, had I had to pick this one and Gosford Park was on there, I would have started <laughs> breaking things. Okay. Um, all right. I don't want to guess old ones until I get... Um, and there's no television, right? Mm-mm. No British series or something. I don't want to guess old movies until I get years because there's too much there. Okay. Ooh, well, she was in, what have I seen her recently in? Oh, Beautiful Creatures. Uh, no, that the is not Alden one of them. That's Reich's a movie. very good no? guess, but no. <laughs> Damn it. All right, so that's two wrong guesses. So what are the years that I'm missing? The years you are missing are, there are two from 2003 okay. and one from 2010. And one from 2010, so nothing mm-hmm. old. Okay. No. All right. 2003. Well, she's in Cold Mountain, so that's got to be one of them. Correct. Cold Mountain. All right. Um, 2010 and 2003. So ours was 2002. Ask the Dust, which she's briefly in, was not 2010. Um, is she in, yeah, right? The, the Russell Crowe Robin Hood. Well done. Yes, that is, that is the third one. (laughs) And what am I missing? 2003. Yep. The most bonkers of them all. Oh God. All right. Um, This is wonderful. It's so it's like, it's, uh, is it bad? Is it a bad movie? I think that's relative, Joe. <laughs> oh my god! I don't know. I, I mean, like anyone who loves this movie, I don't know if they would tell you that it's a good movie. It's okay. an enjoyable movie. Okay, all right. But it's not designed to be, you know, high art. Is it like, uh, like horror? No, not at all. Eh, well, again, that's relative. <laughs> but no. <laughs> no. All right. Um. All right. All right, 2003, not a horror movie. 
It is definitely most known in the legacy of its star, a former teen star, or a former, like, tween star, I would say. Oh, so it's like a romantic comedy. Uh, um, there is romance in it, yes. Oh, boy. It's a comedy about love, not necessarily romantic love. Oh, okay. Oh. Huh. Not necessarily romantic love. What other kind of love? Um, teen star. So, like, um, Hilary Duff. No, not a Hilary Duff, but you're not far off. Somebody who's definitely known. I don't know if this, if this actress had a pop career, but she's more known for being funny. For being and, like, f- character roles. Oh. Um, so not Lohan. No, not Lohan. Am I but in the right neighborhood? You, like You're like, in the right neighborhood as far as like the downfall is concerned. Oh, uh, Amanda Bynes. Yes. Is she in the soccer movie? Is she in the, the um She is, but it is not the soccer movie. No, but I mean is Eileen Atkins, so Eileen Atkins is not in the soccer movie. Um, no. um uh first daughter. Um mm, no. so so close. No, <laughs> First daughter is Katie Holmes, though, right? It's think, the other one. Think Christine. Think Christina Aguilera. Oh, oh. <laughs> Eileen Adkins is in What a Girl Wants. That's exactly right. Yes. <laughs> what the actual fuck? Wait, but that kind of makes sense because it takes place in England, right? She, yeah, she plays um, Eleanor of Aquitaine in Robin Hood. She also plays Eleanor of Aquitaine in What a Girl Wants. <laughs> Perfect. So weird. I'm gonna go out immediately and go watch What a Girl Wants and find out what it's, the hell Eileen Atkins is doing in that movie. It's a cute movie. Amazing. All right, that's fantastic. All right, Cr- Chris, I'm going to. Well, this is kind of interesting. All right, so Vanessa Redgrave in this movie, few cultural touchstones that she has with me. One of them being her Oscar speech where she uh, name drops. Name drop Zionist hoodlums, but she also is a little footnote in one of my other favorite Oscar moments, which is the best actress tie between uh, Barbara Streisand and Catherine Hepburn. She's one of the other nominees who uh, Ingrid Bergman shouts out Vanessa Redgrave in Isadora. Okay, so I am going to give you one of the two winners of best actress that year to guess Catherine Hepburn. Katie Hepburn. Perhaps our um, finest actress. Yes. Um, I will say on Golden Pond. Yes, that is one of them. Guess who's coming to dinner? Nope. One straight. Okay. Um, the Lion in Winter? Where she plays Eleanor of Aquitaine. So we have some accidental crossover between Catherine Hepburn and Eileen Atkins. Yes, so that's too correct. We haven't ha- we haven't really done anybody that goes that far back, so I feel like I'm just gonna have to guess the obvious ones to test this algorithm that I think I've done, and I'll just say um uh, 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 Philadelphia story. Yes, correct, the Philadelphia story. Um, okay, uh, I'm still shooting in the dark here. I will say you only uh, got one strike. African- well, uh, the African Queen. Yes. Damn. All right. So, yes. I don't want to get that wrong just so that I could test whatever it would be, but I guess the most yeah, obvious Yeah, they are the four most obvious ones. So, yes. Well done. Got them it's all. It's a tie. It's a tie. I will almost certainly have dropped that audio into this by this point. So, love it. All right. Well done, Chris. Once again, you have blazed a trail through the IMDb game. So, why don't you 
give your to Richard. All right. Okay. So one of the uh, ensemble members that we did not mention in this movie, also not mentioned on the poster, and also a man. So several reasons why would we mention him is uh, Barry Bostwick plays the oh father of Mamie Gummer, the husband of Glenn Close. However, Barry Bostwick is not your IMDb game challenge, oh, but okay, he's good. most famous for being in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So I went that route, and your IMDb game challenge is Tim Curry. Okay. Um, clue. Clue. Nice. The It miniseries? No. Okay. Tim Curry. What else is Tim Curry in? He's in um, Congo. Congo. Yes. yes. Wow. Where he plays the most ridiculous character. Again, they Sorry. they just showed up and filmed him he's, as he is in his normal life. <laughs> I will. I will uh, give you a little bit of help to say that, like, just like, don't rule out anything just because. It may have been used in Chris's preamble. Oh, right. Rocky Horror. Yes, Rocky Horror. So you have one left to go, and you only have one wrong answer. Uh, um, can I get year? Can I ask for that, or do I have to disqualify myself into getting the year? You can throw anything out to get to that point if you want. Okay. okay. Mikhail's Navy? Mikhail's Navy is not the answer, but the year is 1990. Oh, boy. And you're in the right oh, geographic oh, oh. area. <laughs> yes, you are not far um, uh, uh, occupationally off. Oh, occupationally. 1990. So it's not Home Alone 2, obviously. It is not Home Alone 2. Um, and it's a movie, not a TV show. It is a movie. I mean, there is a TV show based off of the same character now. Oh. Wait, is there? Yes. You didn't realize that Oh, that character. I'm sorry. I was... Yes, you're the right. Lead, one of the lead characters, I yes, would say. Not Tim right. Curry's character. So it's similar to the Navy. Oh, boy. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get at this. Um... It's a famous book series by an author who has been deliciously roasted in the past year in a movie I'm pretty sure we all love. An author? Oh, God. Um, Mikhail's hey, Navy is about a boat that's above surface, right? Yes. Okay. Oh, this is about a boat below the surface. Oh, is he in The Hunt for Red October? The Hunt for Red October. Oh, okay. Tom Clancy. If there was nothing that... Can You Ever Forgive Me has donated to the culture. It was yeah. shitting on Tom Clancy. That was a good joke. That was a good bit. Tim Curry is tough. I, I had a different actress uh, set aside for you. But we'll wait. I just had to check. And, and in fact, Tim Curry is in McHale's Navy. And you know who else is in McHale's Navy? Who? Kelsey Grammer. Eileen Atkins. Well, no, Kelsey Grammer's in Par Down Periscope. Um, oh. Playing Lieutenant Penelope Carpenter. Eileen one, Atkins. Deborah Messing. Oh, Deborah Messing, yes. no. <laughs> well, uh, America's answer to Eileen Atkins, Deborah Messing. <laughs> wow. Well, now I know what I'm doing with the rest of my afternoon. I am watching mm -hmm. Down Periscope. Oh, or Mikhail's no, Navy. That... 
Wait, <laughs> which one? Now I've already. It's Mikhail's Navy. Isn't Deborah it? Messing is in Mikhail's Navy. Kelsey Grammer is in Down Periscope. Well, America's answer to Kelsey Grammer is Deborah Messing, clearly. So, <laughs> yes. All right, Richard. Well done, and thank you so much for guesting on this episode and for truly bringing the ultimate This Had Oscar Buzz entry to our, in front of our unsuspecting faces. <laughs> truly, thank this had to happen. I'm glad that I finally watched it. What a great reason to finally watch this bad movie. Yeah, um, exactly. But you're right, Chris, that we should, we should at least remember that there, movies like this used to be released, and uh, now they are not very often. Yeah. Um, R.I.P. Fox so. 2000. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Richard, thank you so much. That is our episode. If you listeners want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Richard, tell our listeners where they can keep up with you and, uh, more importantly, where they can find your book because it's great and they should all read it. Oh, yeah. Well, Tell I, us I, about that. At the moment. At the moment, my I'm I'm stuck elbow deep in a in a hunting tree thing. But, uh, <laughs> once I have my hand free, I'll be I tweet at Rylaws R I L E W S. Uh, I write for VF.com and for the print edition of Vanity Fair, uh, and my book called All You Can Do Is Wait, which is a young adult novel, uh, partly inspired by my summer spent in Rhode Island as a teen. Nice. So kind of a similarity to Evening um, is available in paperback and audiobook uh, anywhere you can get those things. Eileen Atkins does the audiobook, I imagine, yes. Well, it's me. It's her and Tim Curry. Nice. And then um, Mary Stuart Masterson <laughs> as Iggy. Nice. So it's a whole kind of soup. Well, yeah. because well, when you wrote Iggy into the book, you sort of, you know, you boxed oh, her in sorry, a little bit. It, it is Fried Green Tomatoes fanfic. It started as that <laughs> on, on, the, on the message boards. Much like uh, Fifty Shades of Grey started as, uh, or, as Twilight fanfic, yeah. Or the upcoming movie After. Do you know about this movie after? No. The trailer. It's based on Harry Styles fanfic about a Harry Styles esque figure going to a girl's university and falling in love with her. No. <laughs> we truly have entered the golden age of fanfic, I feel like right and, now. And it's re- it's being released by Aviron, which put out um Serenity, the crazy Serenity. Yep. Mm-hmm. So anyway, oh, go, see, go, go see after, which I wrote and directed. <laughs> <laughs> Truly, you have made some of the most memorable films of our time, of course. Trolls and now After. Wow. Right. And then the upcoming After Trolls, which is Trolls fanfic about Harry Styles. So. Right. Well, you all, you, like I was saying, or you were saying, you, you want everything, everyone in one movie. Right. So I'm, I'm bringing them all together. Cinematic universes. So mm-hmm. proud of you, Richard. Very, very glad. All right. Thank you very much. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? Find me on Twitter at Crispy File. That's F E I L. Also on Letterboxd, where I keep our running list of this hot Oscar buzz titles that has IMDb game stats and direct links to our episodes. You can also find me on the filmexperience.net. Nice. I am on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R E I D. I am also on Letterboxd as Joe Reed, spelled the exact same way. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with iTunes visibility. So please don't just walk around for years and years with a kind review of our podcast folded up in your wallet. Be brave and submit it to iTunes for all of us to see and then look both ways before you cross the street. That float on over like <laughs> Vanessa Red gave to a moth to a flame. Truly. And give us a good review. Row your little sailboat over 
anything you can do, truly. That is all. Thank you. That is all for this week. But we hope you will be back next week for more Buzz. Everyone's a winner, baby. That's so loud. That's so loud. You never-